All right, so we, if you don't know, we are doing a series in the book of Revelation, okay? We, uh, we're, we're too confident as a church, and so we are doing a series in the book of Revelation. And the section of Revelation that we are in this week and last week is a particularly intense section of Revelation. The imagery in it is really intense imagery, and what's in communicating is very intense in all sorts of ways. Uh, so we were in the seven seals last week, opening the seven seals. We opened six of them. We'll get to the seventh today. And this week we're in the the famous seven trumpets, okay? And and what we saw uh, with this imagery, how I kind of described it is, it's kind of like getting on the boat in the original Willy Wonka movie, okay? If you haven't seen the movie, go back, watch the movie. But it's just, you get lots of images, they're overwhelming, and it's, for some of us, it's like that's where we kind of don't want to keep reading Revelation. And so I would just say this, there are a lot of beautiful things about God and what he's communicating through these sections that are really intense, and I would just encourage you to, to keep at it. Here's my other encouragement, uh, not to sound like self-aggrandizing or something, but I would say go back, listen to the sermon from last week. Because in the book of Revelation, there are these three sets of seven, what we learned last week. There are three sets of seven in the book of Revelation, and they're all connected to each other. And last week we started with the first set of seven, the seven seals, and we gave it, uh, an introduction to how to understand these seven seals. And we gave a lengthy, like we spent a lengthy amount of time talking about that. And so that's why I say, hey, go back. If today you're kind of like, okay, this part was confusing or that was confusing. I would just say, hey, I I probably can't cover every single thing I'd want to cover every single week. And so just go back, listen to that. It gives a good introduction to what these three sets of seven are. But I want to summarize a little bit of what we talked about last week. And so here's what we learned is there in the book of Revelation, there are these three sets of seven. There are the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven bowls. What we see in Revelation is they actually come out of one another. They are very much connected to one another. Out of the seventh seal comes all seven trumpets. Out of the seventh trumpet, there's some imagery in the interlude, but then the angels come over and bring the seven bowls. And and this is how the imagery in Revelation works. They're all connected. We also talked about how all three sets of seven... Are, are talking about God's judgment or discipline, as Scott McKnight, a scholar, uh, I think a pastor as well, uh, talked about. Maybe he's just a scholar right now, but uh, he, he prefers this term discipline because this is like how God is dealing with evil from his throne throughout history. Another thing we talked about these three sets of seven is that they're kind of parallel to one another. A lot of times uh, in American kind of end times or revelation theology, we kind of read them almost like they're chronological. But the problem with that is all three sets of seven end with the final judgment of God, with the day of the Lord, as the Old Testament calls it. And they just describe it in three different kinds of ways. But it's the final judgment of God when he comes back and he makes everything right and he takes all of sin out of creation. All three end in that day. So because all three end in that day, we don't, as Christians, and as what the Bible says, it it doesn't talk about three separate final judgments of God. It really only talks about one final judgment of God, hence the title, Final Judgment of God. And so, so we learned that they, they all end at the same time, which means they probably all cover the same time span. 
Okay, that's a, I, I'm explaining that because that's one of our first hurdles when it comes to understanding these three sets of seven. A lot of people read them kind of like chronological, what God's going to do at the very, very end of time. But what I think, because of that's where they end and other clues and things in the book of Revelation, it, I think all three sets of seven cover the same time span. And I think that time span, and this is going to be the bummer, I think that time span covers from the resurrection of Jesus to his return. Okay, so I, I, I don't have some special secret knowledge for you guys going like, it's really this on this day and it's the seven years or what. Like, I don't have any. I think they cover between the resurrection of Jesus and his return. Okay, and all three cover that same time span, not sections of that time span, but that same time span because they all three end at the same time. Okay, a little bit confusing. So I'll just say, again, go back, listen to that sermon if you didn't get a chance to. Uh, the other things we learned about this is that these three sets of seven is, is how God is communicating judgment towards sin and how he's eradicating evil out of his creation. And, and, and we learned that God is, it's, it's almost like God is hoping that, that we as humans would see the brokenness and the sinfulness of this world and of humanity and it would cause us to turn to him. That we would see those things, look at it, and go, this is disgusting. Like, this is bad. We don't need this. This is not right. We need to turn to God who is all goodness, all rightness, and, and all that. And so, so last week in particular, we talked about three of the famous images in chapter 6 and 7. But one of the images we spent a lot of time on is the, the imagery of the four horsemen. And the four horsemen point to this fact that part of how God judges and disciplines and eradicates evil out of history is he seems to just let humans be humans. He seems to give humans over to their idolatry, to their sin, and just say, okay, this is what you want. This is what you want to pursue. Go ahead and pursue it. But the, what will happen when you pursue it are all sorts of consequences because of your own actions, because of what you're pursuing. And so the four horsemen, we realize, represent what humans themselves bring into the world when they pursue the things they want to pursue. So they bring, we bring conquest. We bring war. We bring bloodshed. We bring famine. We bring death. Okay? And so that is a little bit of a summary of last week. Everybody take a breath with me and a drink. Okay, so before we get started today, I do want to say this. I said something kind of flippantly last week. You know, sometimes preachers, uh, they say stuff off the cuff because uh, this can be a little bit hard to talk for 30 minutes or 40 minutes or whatever. And I, I said something a little bit flippantly that I wish I didn't say, and so I, I, I legitimately want to apologize. I began last week at one point when talking about God's judgment, I began to say, hey, there, if you're excited as a preacher to talk about God's judgment, you really shouldn't be. But the way that I said that, I said it a few different ways, but one of the things that I said is, if, if you have a preacher who's excited to talk about God's judgment, find a new church. Like, that's what I said last week, okay? And I, I really don't like that I said that. And I just want to apologize because our society is so divisive. The church in America is so divisive. There's tons. Of, I just don't want to add rhetoric to the division and polarization. Like, I, I just feel like as I read John 17, Jesus's prayer for unity in the church, I was like, I, I regret that I, I said it like that, okay? So I'm sorry. No one emailed me about it. I just, I just... 
I was like thinking about it. I was like, I wish I didn't say it that way. So I, 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 and I'm apologizing right now because I, I think that's the sort of language we shouldn't participate in as Christians. There's good reasons to find new churches for sure, but I don't think we should kind of participate in that kind of vitriolic language like, like I did last week. I do still stand by my point, and I do think it's important to, to note that when we as Christians, if we are delighted or excited to talk about God's judgment, we might not really understand God's judgment. Like, and, and that's kind of the point. That, that is the point I did make uh, pretty explicitly, but I, 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 I do stand by that. If you really understand God's judgment, it's, it's probably not something you should be delighted to talk about and preach about. But on the flip side of that, my guess is most people in this room, they're never excited to talk about God's judgment. For me knowing you guys and for me knowing myself, I think most of us are like, ah, let's not talk about that. Let's like avoid that conversation. And I know why. It's because all of us in this room at some point in our life have experienced judgment from somebody or discipline or wrath. And we remember what that feels like. Right? Like we remember when someone was mad at us or judged us or said judgmental things or accusatory things. We remember how that feels and we remember those feelings. And then, so then when we get into these sections in the book of Revelation that kind of talk about God's judgment, God's displeasure with sin in the world, those same feelings come up. Because some of us can even go a step further and go, man, I'm culpable in this. Like, I, I add sin into the world with my own life. And, and because of all that, I think most of us don't like talking about God's judgment, thinking about God's judgment, reading about ju- God's judgment. Like, we avoid it at all costs. And so when we get into chapter 6, like last week, and chapter 8 that we'll be in today, where we see God's displeasure with sin in the world and him dealing with it, those same kinds of feelings come up and creep up and, and make us not, not even want to think about it or, or read about it. So here's what I want to say. Here is what is amazing about the section of Revelation that we are in today. We will see, we will see that God is serious about sin. It's hard to get around that fact in the book of Revelation. God is serious about sin. He does not want sin in his creation. But... We will also see how big his love and his mercy for his creation and for humanity is. In fact, we're going to be in chapters 8 through 11 today, a large section. I think the, the kind of the climax and the point of this section is God saying, no, my love and my mercy is bigger than you think. It's way bigger than you could imagine. So even with all this vivid imagery that stirs all kinds of feelings in us from the seven trumpets, just know that as we follow the imagery and the story of the imagery, that ultimately God will be speaking a message about his love and his mercy. And I hope to point that out this morning, okay? So, like I said, we're going to cover chapters 8, 9, 10, and 11 today. We're not reading every verse, obviously, but here's how the sermon will go. First kind of part of the sermon, we're going to look at these six trumpets, six of seven trumpets, uh, because that's where all the action happens, and out of the seventh comes the other stuff. So we'll look at overall the seven trumpets, and and we're going to look at some of the features and lessons, and even I'm going to just 
rapid-fire answer questions that we have about the trumpets often, okay? And so we'll just kind of go through that together. And then the second part of the sermon, we are going to look at some of these images that follow the trumpets. There's this image of a, a giant rainbow angel, as I like to call it. There's this image of, of these two witnesses and this beast and all this kind of stuff. And so we're going to go through and look at those images and hear what those images are trying to teach us, okay? So before we get started, before we hop into the scriptures, I'm going to take another drink. It's always awkward, um, but for me, I don't know for you, it probably is too, but uh, I just want to remind us, I've reminded us of this almost every week, the book of Revelation tells us one of the genres that it is, and it says, hey, I'm apocalypse. In verse one of Revelation, we, we translate the revelation of Jesus Christ. In the Greek, that's the apocalypse, the apocalypsis of Jesus Christ, the apocalyptic of Jesus Christ in, in the Greek. I don't know. I can't remember Greek. And so, but we translate Revelation because at the time when the English translations happened, there wasn't a good word for apocalypse. But apocalypse in that time when this book was written, the book of Revelation, was a genre of literature. It wasn't a genre of movies. Like, it was a genre of literature, okay? And that genre of literature was very different from our genre of movies. That genre of literature, it took images, it took symbols, it often was Jewish in nature, and so it often took a lot of biblical images and stories and used them symbolically. And so this is why it's important for us to know this going into the trumpets. The trumpets are showing us real things about God and how he's ruling over all of history, but they're not showing us literal things, okay? This is hard for people when I say this. They go, well, how is it not showing us literal things? These are symbols. They're communicating real things and true things about God and how he's ruling over history, but it's not saying this is exactly how it's going to go down. And then, well, people go, oh, of course, I don't think that. But a lot of times what people do is they go, well, this symbol really means this exact same kind of a thing going down in history. And it's like that's still like missing the symbol for what it is. And so we have to remember going into Revelation today that the imagery is telling us a story. It's using our imaginations. It's almost like God is using all this like moving cartoon artwork to kind of get us to think about how he is working in the world, how he's ruling in history, and, and all that kind of stuff, okay? Because, so it's teaching us real and true things, but not literally how those things will go down, okay? So, especially when it's in that apocalyptic genre, okay? Does that make sense? So, all of that said, that was like three intros in a row. What I hope, what I hope is that the book of Revelation today and the images that we're in, in chapters 8, 9, 10, and 11, I hope that the images kind of tell us a story today, Here's what I, I personally loved about studying Revelation the last year or so, however long I've been studying it for the series. I have be, I've begun to, my, in my mind, in, in my imagination, it's begun to do what the book of Revelation is trying to do. It's trying to get you to imagine these things and think, okay, what is God communicating through these vivid images and symbols and so I think eight, chapters 8, 9, 10, and 11 in particular kind of go like, look at this story of images and what does that mean? And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to try to do that, but I'll be honest, you're going to get a lot of sidebar theological commentary because especially in the trumpets, there's all kinds of ways people have used these trumpets in weird ways and all that. So all that being said, let's hop into it. We're going to start in chapter 8 
I think I have an eyelash in my eye. I apologize. Satanic attack on me right now. Right in front of you. Cast it out. Uh, so if you see me mess with my eye, it's still happening. Um, so chapter 8, we're going to see what leads up to the trumpets being blown. And I, th- I think this intro is really important for us. So chapter 8, verse 1, I'm going to read the first six verses. Here's what it says. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal... There was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. Okay, so this week in chapter 8, we got to the seventh seal open. And if you don't know that image, it's like a wax seal that was put on a scroll by a king so they knew who it was coming from, not the fun aquatic animal, okay? And so the seventh seal, the seventh seal was opened, and out of the seventh seal, the trumpets are like handed to these angels. The angels kind of walk over the trumpets, but even before that, there's just like silence in heaven, reverence, something where they're just going, okay. Let's see what happens next. And then the angels come over. They're holding the trumpets. But then something else happens. What happens is we see this, this scene. You've, you've probably seen in other countries, like re- different religions kind of use incense and censers and these different sorts of things uh, to, to speak to their gods or to give sacrifices or, or, or whatever it was. And that practice was not uncommon in the first century either in all sorts of ways. And even you can read about the, the, the tabernacle and the different ways that incense was used. And so you have this angel kind of doing this incense action where smoke is rising up, but then we're told that the smoke represents the prayers of the saints, the prayers of the Christians, the prayers of the believers going up to God, giving us a visual image of what happens when we pray. When we pray, it goes up to God and it fills his nose like smoke from incense would. Like just very vivid imagery to say, God hears your prayers. Really, really cool imagery. And so here's what's really important though. A lot of the scholars say that the trumpets are actually an answer to these saints' prayers. And so a lot of the scholars go, we have to understand what the prayers were of the saints. And it seems from how how I read Revelation, I should say, that their prayers are probably very similar to the prayers of the martyrs under the altar that we read about last week. We saw these martyrs last week crying out to God, praying to God, saying, God, when will you avenge our blood? An intense lament. Saying, God, evil was done to us on earth. When will you avenge us? When will you bring justice to us? We talked about how for some, judgment brings hope. Hope of a God who's right and just and righteous. And so a a lot of the the scholars that I read, they think that these saints' prayers here, especially because they're so close to the martyrs' prayers, are similar sorts of prayers to God on his throne and because the trumpets seem to be God's answer to these prayers. And so here's, 
how I would summarize what I think the saints are praying to God. And there's, there's little literary clues in Revelation about this from the martyrs, also with the locusts, as we'll see. But I think they're kind of saying this. God, if you are on your throne, if you're sitting up there on your throne, why does evil abound? What are you doing about evil in the world? I, I could even see the saints going, look at our brothers and sisters right there under your altar, as the imagery showed us last week. They're getting murdered for their faith in you. What are you doing about it? Right? This is kind of like, uh, when we cry, why, do, why do bad things happen to good people? Like they're crying this out to God. God, if you're on your throne, why does evil abound? And the trumpets are God's answers to their prayers. This is how God answers the prayers of his saints, is with these trumpets, okay? So, I'm going to read some of the trumpets. For time's sake, I'm only going to read the first trumpet, and then the two most famous trumpets, and then I'll summarize the rest. I've, read, I've, I've whittled down this sermon so many times, for time's sake, I, because I was like, I really want us to get the imagery, and so, you're lucky, we're not going to read as many trumpets as I wanted, okay? I think originally I had six. And so, we'll read three, I'll summarize the rest, okay? So let's read the first trumpet in verse 7. God's answers, answer to the prayers of the saints. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the, of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. Okay? Now let's hop down to verse 10, where we'll see the third trumpet. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on, the, on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. Okay, that's the third trumpet. Let's hop down to the fifth trumpet. The fifth trumpet is blown, and then kind of like all this stuff happens, and out of the smoke that the fifth trumpet caused from this whole thing uh, come these locusts in verse 3 of chapter 9. So here's the fifth trumpet, verse 3. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth. And they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces. Their hair like women's hair. Their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron. And the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. Okay. The other trumpets are other like natural phenomena, like heavenly phenomena or natural disasters just happening on the earth, usually affecting thirds of the earth or of humanity. And then the sixth trumpet after the trumpet we just read is like this evil army that just goes about and causes death and destruction. 
kind of scary, okay? Like, if you really read through these and you read them, at the end of it, you're like, okay, I'm freaked out now. Like, I'm scared because God says he's going to do this. Like, this is scary because this is like God's decrees from his throne, these royal trumpets of God. This is scary. We have to remember it's symbols, but what do these symbols teach us that's true? Two things. I'm going to really just briefly talk about the first thing, but the second thing is where we'll spend most of our time. But two things the trumpets teach us. The first thing is this. God is serious about sin. He just is. If there, there's all kinds of people who try to read Scripture and try to go, hey, oh, God's not that serious about sin. I, I don't know. We're reading different books. We're reading, like, uh, the He is serious about sin. Sin in the world bothers him deeply. And he is on a mission to get all of sin out of his creation. It bothers him deeply, and the trumpet imagery shows us how much so. He wants to destroy sin. He wants to get it out of his creation. Sin is serious to God. You just, if you read scripture and you're going to be honest and you're even going to do all the scholarly work to interpret what is being said, you're going to walk away going, sin is really serious to God. Okay, that, that, that is something, something that the trumpets show us. But secondly, here's what the trumpets show us. Remember, the trumpets are an answer to the, the, to the saints' prayers, to the Christians' prayers. Their prayers saying, God, where are you? Why does evil abound? And these trumpets, with the imagery, answer their prayers this way. It's almost like God is saying, through the imagery of the trumpets, I don't let evil abound. I am bringing justice. I am eradicating evil. And if you could see exactly how I was, it would look like the plagues to you. So it's like God is saying, if you could see how exactly I am dealing with evil, it would look like the plagues to you. The, tr- the trumpets, they have all of this plague imagery in them, a specific, specific plagues, the plagues of the book of Exodus. So if you don't know that story, go read it. It's really central to the Bible. But there's this story where God's people are enslaved, and God wants, God wants to free them, rescue them. Egypt doesn't want to let them go, and so God sends plagues in order to get Egypt to go, okay, God is, is going to keep messing with us unless we let them go. And so the imagery in the trumpets, it's very reminiscent. It's very similar to the plague imagery. It's some of the same exact plagues just described maybe a little bit differently. Any Jewish reader, which John was a Jewish person, would have thought of the Exodus and their plague imagery as they're reading the trumpets in particular. So one, one fun note before we keep going. One thing to know, I don't know if I've noted this in the series yet, but John, often what John sees, as God has given John all these visions, often what John sees reminds him of the previous things that God really did do on earth. And, and, that's, and so then he uses all this kind of plague imagery from, from the Exodus story. And even you, we read a lot about the locust. The locust is plague imagery from the Exodus story, but it's also plague imagery from something that happened in the book of Joel, part of the Old Testament as well. So this happens a lot in the book of Revelation. The way that John sees something or the way that God shows John something is with the same imagery of God's actual work in events previously in history to John's time as we can see recorded in the Bible. And so John 
a lot of times takes that same imagery, writes it down, uses it so we can be thinking of those stories. This is huge in the book of Revelation. Some scholars are like, you, this is the key to understanding Revelation is understand how often John is doing that with Old Testament stories and imagery and symbols. So even like the time frames and the numbers that John uses, a lot of times the time frames and the numbers themselves are numbers and time frames from other Bible stories. So they are symbols to, to help us remember and think, oh, man, that happened in the book of Daniel. What's that about? Like that kind of a thing. Rather than we kind of take them and go, it's a literal this many days or a little this, literal this or a literal that. John is using apocalyptic, the, he's, he's being an apocalyptic writer of, of scripture by, by using these symbols because he wants to hearken back to those various stories. So with the plague imagery here, and the cry of God's people saying, God, what are you doing about evil in the world? God's answer is, if you could see what I was doing about evil in the world, it would look like the Exodus plagues to you. Now, I, I, I have to take a minute and caution you guys around some things uh, with, with these symbols and how we interpret them, how we use them. God is not talking about divine timeouts for people every time like a natural disaster happens. I've heard Christians do this. Every time a natural disaster happens somewhere, uh, some country, some place, they go, God's judging them for this and this and this and this. That, that's, that's not what the imagery is trying to, to communicate. But it is communicating how serious sin is to them and that if we could see exactly how he is bringing justice into the world and dealing with evil, it would look like the Exodus plagues to us. Okay? So that's, that's the trumpets. God's saying, I am dealing with sin. I am dealing with evil. And if you could see it, it would look like the Exodus plagues to you. That being said, the trumpets are where... The end times theologians of our day love to come up with all kinds of ideas. So we read the trumpets and we go, I got questions. I read the trumpets, I go, I remember hearing it this way and that seems like a pretty good interpretation. Why is that not the case? And so what I want to do is I just want to kind of rapid fire through some of the questions that come up when you read the trumpets, okay? Rapid fire as best I can. So one question you might have is, okay, what's up with all the thirds? God's just smiting a third of everything, third of this, third of that, third of these people, third of boats, like third of everything. So I grew up hearing that's just what God's going to do at some point, okay? At some point in time, just boats gone, a third of them, like, that, like God's going to do, that's what I grew up hearing. But that sort of interpretation forgets that even the numbers in the book of Revelation are symbols to communicate things. And so what is one third trying to communicate in these trumpets? It's trying to communicate this. That God's judgments and disciplines have a limit and they're only partial. That God's judgments have a limit and are partial. He's not going to do this to everything and everyone. He loves his creation too much to just totally wipe it out. Right? That's the Noah story, right? Like he loves it too much to do that. And so the thirds are trying to communicate that there is a limit to God's judgment. Okay? That's what's up with the thirds. Uh, what about Wormwood? You know, everybody's like, I saw a comet once named Wormwood or whatever. And so what's up with Wormwood? Wormwood, in that day, it was a bitter-tasting plant that they used for various medicinal purposes. And sometimes I think the way they prepared it, it could accidentally kill someone. That, 
that, that's wormwood, okay? Like, all right, done. Okay, what's up, uh, what's up with the locusts? What's up with the locusts, okay? The locusts are one of the most famous images from the book of Revelation, thank you, left behind, but also because of God and John. When you read the locusts, this is some of the most descriptive, vivid, terrifying detail. I didn't even read all of the verses about the locusts. I missed the whole part about their scorpion tails. Like, there's like, there's just uh, a lot of imagery given to these locusts, and you just kind of go, what is going on here? What's up with them? How do you interpret them? Here, I've heard this growing growing up. These were the two things that I heard, okay? And I'm going to not believe these two things, but I heard that the locusts were helicopters, that God was showing John helicopters coming into some place, and John didn't have a word for helicopters. They didn't have helicopters back then, if you didn't know that. And so this is like his best attempt at describing what the helicopters that he saw. Okay, I heard that, heard that growing up. I also heard that there's just gonna be, at some point, literal demon, human-faced scorpion locusts that enter the earth and just start stinging people that aren't Christians and they're gonna be, like, tortured for five months. Like, that's what I, that is a, that's, that's the left behind take. And so these are the things that I heard about the locusts. But remember, and I'm gonna say this a hundred times probably in the series, the locusts, are symbols. They are symbols. They are imagery to show us how fiercely God is dealing with evil, whether we see it or not. But that being said, you get left with questions about the locust. So why five months? Well, five months might have been John's understanding of the life cycle of a locust. He might have said, oh, they live for five months. And so they, the five months, like the third, communicates that there is a limit to God's judgment. Okay? Uh, Another question, why the human faces, the terrifying described human faces? Again, God is kind of teaching us what we went in depth with last week, that a lot of how he is judging the world is by letting humans just pursue what they want to pursue. Scholar Catherine Corey, she, she comments on the locust faces. I like what she says. She says, it's like God is letting us, reminding us that evil has a human face by putting a human face on the locust, okay? Uh, why just non-Christians is another question that happens. I think this is because the, tr- the trumpets are, bless you, the tr- that was terrifying. I thought the locusts were coming in. I was like, you're wrong, Anthony. There's a real locust coming. Uh, whew. That's okay. I'm like, all right, I'm a Christian. <laughs> like, you can't sting me. Uh, so <laughs> so why, why are they only stinging on Christians? Remember, I think the trumpets are God's answers to the prayers of his people. And this is a good little place where you can kind of see, like, hey, see, look, this is what I'm doing about evil in the world, but not to you guys who are protected by Jesus. Okay, so that's the locusts, all right? Uh, the locusts are another symbol God uses to show how serious sin is to him, okay? What about all the natural disasters, all the natural phenomenon? Again, this is the plague imagery being used. And it was the very things that people in that day feared. Those were the sorts of things that people feared. And honestly, because of the, the, the power of sin in this world, that's why natural disasters happen, which is, I think, part of why the imagery gets year, used there. Like, by God allowing... Uh, in one sense, I think the trumpets are communicating like this is, this is God's judgment on sin. And again, don't get weird with it, but let it kind of communicate at what it's trying to communicate. These, these are symbols about how fiercely God is dealing with sin. These things won't literally happen in these ways. I really believe that, believe it or not. Okay, so the trumpets are God's answers 
to the, the cries of his people saying, what are, you, what are you doing? What are you doing on your throne? What are you doing about evil? And he says, if you could see what I was doing, it would look like the Exodus plagues to you. Okay? So all these trumpets happen. All these trumpets happen in the imagery of the story. And then the people of the world respond to all of these crazy things happening. Look how they respond in chapter 9. And imagine this. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues, did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. So all of these crazy trumpets happen. All of these crazy things happen in the Im image-filled story cartoon that God is trying to show us. All of these thing ha things happen, and how does the world respond? They don't repent. De these locusts, this evil army, these natural phenomena and disasters. In the, in the cartoon story, the people see all that, experience that in certain ways, and they go, we're still not going to turn to God. We still don't want to turn to God. And it's because that God has a different plan to get humanity to repent. And that plan is in chapters 10 and 11. Okay, let's keep going. Let's read verses 1 through 3 of chapter 10. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. Let's pause there. Imagine the scene if you can. In chapter 10, we get to what I like to call the giant rainbow angel. It's the best way to describe it as far as I'm concerned. I'm yet to see a scholar refer to it that way. The giant rainbow angel. This is a giant angel. So imagine this giant angel. He is so giant that a rainbow is around his head. So I think you're literally supposed to imagine as big as a rainbow is, that's where the angel's head fits. Okay? He's this giant. He's got fiery legs. He's got a face shining like the sun. He's got a loud voice. He's a giant rainbow angel. Now remember... The rainbow is a beautiful biblical symbol, a beautiful biblical symbol of the covenant that God made with Noah. And the covenant was, saying, was God saying to the people of the earth, listen, I am putting my war bow against sin, my war bow of judgment, war bow of judgment into the heavens, and it's not going to be pointed at you guys anymore, it's going to be pointed at myself. How beautiful of, a, of an image. And this rainbow comes wearing that, that rainbow. And it says he has a scroll in his hand. Now, people debate what the scroll is. I think this is the scroll that had the seven seals on it. There's some literary evidence that this is the scroll. So this scroll, this royal decree of God, this scroll that no one but the lamb could open, this is the scroll I think the giant rainbow angel is holding. And so in the rest of chapter 10, what he does with the scroll, he takes the scroll and he makes John eat the scroll. 
And John eats the scroll, and it's sweet to his mouth, but it's bitter to his stomach. Now, this scroll represents like God's plan. God's plan over history, what he wants to do, but it also represents God's word. Isn't that how God's word is sometimes for us? We eat it, it tastes sweet, we hear it for the first time, it sounds sweet, but then when we really process it and think about it, we're like, I don't know if I like that. I don't know if I want to believe that. Like, this is how sometimes we interact with God's word, unfortunately, because it just doesn't make sense to our human sensibilities. And so John is told after he eats the scroll or right before that, this, he needs to regurgitate, he needs to prophesy, he needs to speak the words of this scroll to the world. He needs to tell what's in this scroll. And I think what we see in chapter 11 is some of the contents of the scroll or all of the contents. Some people might think it's like the whole book of Revelation. But I think at the very least, chapter 11 is some of the contents of the scroll which are God on his throne. It's his royal decrees about how he wants to deal in history with evil and all sorts of things. And John needs to go, here's God's marching orders for us. Okay, and we get this very famous imagery of the two witnesses. So chapter 11, I'm gonna read verses three through 13. It's kind of a lot, but I think the imagery is so important for us to understand what God is speaking. Here's verse three. And I will grant authority... To my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Now, imagine the cartoon, okay, guys? These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours out of their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into uh, blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that, is, that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where, the, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Okay, let's stop there. So we get this imagery of these two witnesses, who are also called two olive trees, who are also called two lampstands. And they get up, and they start speaking these mighty words about God. No one on the earth really likes what they're saying. They seem to have a lot of opposition because fire comes out of their mouth to consume the opposition. But they, they're clearly empowered by God to do all kinds of uh, speaking and prophesying, but also works and signs and, and sorts of things. But then, at some point, out of a deep hole, out of the abyss, comes this beast that we'll talk about at another time. But this beast comes, and it 
kills them. And I think uh, the Christians, the nations and the tribes, I think that represents the Christians. They seem to be mourning like, man, we can't even bury these guys. But what we know for sure is the whole world starts rejoicing. Yes, they're dead. Let's have presents. It's Christmas. Like, let's like, like they start rejoicing. And then God raises them back to life. They ascend into heaven. A great earthquake happens. And then what happens to the people of the world? They turn and give God glory. Just a chapter or two ago, people of God see all these great events, or not the people of God, the people of the earth see all these great events and they don't repent. Now, the people of the earth see these events and they turn to God, they give glory to God. So how do we make sense of this story? What is this story that I think is on the scroll teaching us about God? Well, I grew up here in, like the main question is like, who are these two witnesses? Can't wait for these guys to show up, right? So I grew up here in that, it was going to be like literally Moses and Elijah were just going to pop back up in Jerusalem at some point and just start preaching and, and, and being dragons. And like that, that's what I heard growing up. Uh, because part of that too is there's a lot of Exodus imagery in this chapter. There's a lot of uh, Elijah imagery with the various things that he did while he was on the earth. But unfortunately for my Bible teachers who tried to teach me that growing up, verse 4 tells us exactly who they are. It tells us exactly who they are. It says they're olive trees, but it also says that they are lampstands. So the lampstands is a, a key phrase for us figuring out who they are. In the book of Revelation so far, church, who have been the lampstands? The church. The church have been the lampstands. So they are the church. So you might go, okay, why is there only two of them here, not seven? Two witnesses was the legal Jewish and other than Jewish way to say, hey, this is really true testimony. You need at least two witnesses to an event to know it's really true testimony. And so the two witnesses are a symbol that represent the whole church, the whole church throughout history. Every person that's ever put their faith in Jesus, the two witnesses are a, a symbol of them because our role is to witness and what we witness about is the truth about Jesus. And so the two witnesses are a symbol about this. So what should we know, notice in this story in chapter 11 about the church? Two things. First, when the witnesses live and look like Jesus this is when the world repents. I'm just going to say it again. When the witnesses live and look like Jesus, that is when the world repents. Revelation is blatantly saying, look at all of God's judgment towards sin. Look at all this stuff. It, this judgment, though, it doesn't get people to repent. What does get people to repent? God's people, the church, living and looking like Jesus. That's what gets people to repent, not God's judgment. So we should see the witnesses and we should see that their story is our story. Their marching orders are our marching orders. We prophesy a symbol of, of speaking God's words about Jesus and the world hears it. We, like the, the, the witnesses, we are fueled by the Holy Spirit to do great works of love and even power at times to show what God's kingdom is like. 
We, like Jesus and the two witnesses, live a life that results in our deaths. We as Christians, we believe that we live a cross-shaped life, that we've picked up our cross and we're following Jesus. Some call it, say, a cruciform life where we are daily living deaths to ourselves. We are living lives of sacrifice in order to point to the cross of Christ. And, and for the Christians that were reading this, they knew actual Christians that had to go to death itself as they witnessed about Jesus. And so all of that, speaking the words of God, living the words of God, picking up our cross and following Jesus, that is what gets people to repent. The, words, the world, they'll still reject the message, but, but the imagery in there says, God's words are so powerful, it doesn't matter if they reject it. That's the fire imagery in there. His words are like a consuming fire. It doesn't matter if they reject it. This is what's going to happen. And so when the world sees Jesus in us, that's what gets people to repent. God's judgment doesn't get people to repent. Jesus, reflected in his church, gets people to repent. That's God's plan on the scroll. I've never seen that before studying it over the last few weeks. That is what God is communicating all this wild trumpet imagery, and yet God wants to make clear all that wild stuff, it doesn't get people to repent. What does get people to repent? My church looking like me, living like me, speaking like me. This is our calling, church. Look and speak like Jesus, and people will find salvation. It will be a cruciform life. We will experience daily deaths. Some in the world experience literal deaths. But that's what the world will see and then repent. Okay, that is all amazing. But there's one other really amazing part that I really want to highlight for us from the story. I know we're going long. Too bad. Blame God. Uh, I'm going to reread verse 13 because there's this amazing, great reversal happening that we can't miss. Verse 13. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Okay, remember how I said that John liked to use previous literal events in history of God to, uh, in metaphorical ways to speak about and talk about things that help us remember things, right? Uh, in this actual chapter, we read where even the, the city, Sodom, and Egypt are used symbolically. He flat out says, look, I'm using this symbolically to talk about Jerusalem, okay? And there's all this biblical imagery that he's been bringing in mind. The Sodom story, the Egypt story, Exodus story, Elijah stories. And then this verse 13 has notes of it. Here's the note of it. Here's one of the notes. Uh, in the Sodom story, there was this moment where Abraham was asking God, if there's just 10 people in that city, will you spare it from experiencing your judgment? If there's just 10. And unfortunately, there was not. So 100% of that city was devastated by God's judgment. And then there's some more Elijah imagery in here with the 7,000. If you remember the, the famous face-off that Elijah has with the prophets of Baal where God brought fire down from heaven on Elijah's uh, like altar or sacrifice or I don't know, I guess altar, um, where he was burning the sacrifice. There was, it's noted that there's only 7,000 like true Israelites, true believers in God, people that were not worshiping Baal in Israel at that point. 
But I'm not going to say it. I'm actually going to read this quote from N.T. Wright to, to show us this great reversal happening in verse 13. Here's what he says. We should not mistake the powerful impact of the symbolism in verse 13. When God judged Sodom and Gomorrah, he might have spared it if ten righteous persons were found there. Now, however, only one-tenth of the wicked city is to fall, and nine-tenths is to be saved. When God was judging Israel through Elijah, only 7,000 more were left who had not bowed the knee to the pagan god Baal. Now, however, it is only 7,000 who are killed, and a great majority will be rescued. Suddenly, out of the smoke and the fire of the earlier chapters, a vision is emerging. A vision of the creator God as the God of mercy, grieving over the rebellion and corruption of the world, but determined to rescue and restore it, and doing so through the faithful death of the Lamb, and now through the faithful death of the Lamb's prophetic followers. A great reversal has happened because of Jesus. God says, I know there was a time when I took out 100% of a city, but now I'm only taking out 10%. I know there was a time when there was only 7,000 true believers in me. Now there's only 7,000 who will be judged. This is beautiful. God is trying to say with this imagery, I am more merciful and loving than I am wrathful. Maybe you don't believe me. Let's go back to those thirds. Here's what's really interesting. The thirds were kind of used in the other apocalyptic pieces of work in that day. But they were used a little bit differently. In that day, you could take something like the Sibylline Oracles, another apocalypse of sorts. And they would often talk about what God would do. And they would say, it's going to be two-thirds of humanity that are killed. And so two-thirds became this, prop, like this popular way for the Jewish people to talk about how God's judgment will look. And yet here, God says, no, actually, it's only a third. God is not only saying, is he so merciful and loving beyond what we can imagine? He's like, I'm more merciful than you think. That is incredible. I never thought I'd get into the book of Revelation and see that the imagery is blatantly saying, God saying, hey, I want to use my church to show how loving and merciful I am. He is serious about sin, but he wants to communicate his mercy and his love even more, I think. This is what God's been saying since the Exodus. Just go back and see what he says about himself. His judgment is... And, and justice is there, is full and total, but his love and his mercy is bigger. And that's what he wants us to see. And so here, there's two things, four things really at the series that I said that Revelation wants to do. It wants to disciple us into all sorts of things, but two of those things is to disciple us into witnesses and worshipers. Take up your calling, church, from the book of Revelation as witnesses. Live and speak like Jesus, and that is what will turn people to God. And then, church, look at what God himself says in Revelation, that he has far more love and mercy than we think, and even, indeed, that he, give, he prefers to give out and worship him for it. And the slaughtered lamb Jesus is who makes that is what makes that possible. All of those trumpets in one sense, Jesus took on the cross himself. 
And through the, the resurrection of Jesus, we see this love and this mercy. And so worship this God full of mercy. Witness about how he's extended that mercy to you and to me. Amen, church? Amen. God, thank you for this. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your kindness. It is truly incredible to me that this is like how you want to communicate. Repentance will come about. It's truly incredible to me that you want to make known that the way, that, that, that you're just far more merciful than we think. God, we love you. We need you. Help us to see this imagery. Help it to, help it to give us our marching orders, but help it to make us worshipers of you. And out of the worship in our heart, worship in our souls, worship in the totality of us, may we be the sorts of witnesses that you've called us to be and created us to be. God, we love you and we need you. Amen.